Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 10. Today we are embarking on a new series at Sovereign Grace. It is called The Church on Mission. And it's a series that in heart was birthed in us actually last year. We always knew that 2020 was a year where we wanted to hit and talk about the topic of mission. We want to be a church, we've always wanted to be a church that is not only passionate about knowing the gospel and applying the gospel, but is passionate about proclaiming the gospel and taking it to the communities that we live in. And then we, you know, we planted it early in 2020 and then something called COVID happened, you may have heard of it, and so that kind of stopped most things. But we now want to return to this with COVID restrictions starting to ease for all of us in different ways. We wanted to return to this five-week series that we had planned called The Church on Mission. And we're going to begin this with this session then looking at Romans 10 from verses 11 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on this mission series today, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts afresh with sobriety, but also joy, as we know that this is the opportunity and the calling of our lives. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do and no preacher can do? Would you open our hearts and our ears and our minds to this today? That we would be affected to the core of who we are. That we would leave this room today changed, affected by your word, stirred by your word, empowered by your holy word. Lord, would you do these things in Jesus' precious name? Amen. You know, in the pages of the Bible... From start to finish, there is a whole array of different days mentioned, hundreds and hundreds of different days. Some of them in the past, some of them in the present, some of them are days to come in the future. And one of those days to come in the future, I think one of the greatest of those days, I believe, is read about in Revelation chapter 19. And we read about it in verses 6 to 9. This is a vision that God gave to John about the day of his coming and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just listen to these words. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true 
words of God. You know, in that vision of a day to come, which is entitled the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh my, what a day it is going to be, is it not? It is a day when a people from every tribe and language and nation, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ surround him as King of kings and Lord of lords and sing of his glorious praises. My friends, I want to encourage you, there's going to be no COVID restrictions on that day, okay? It is going to be loud. It is going to be proud. Everybody is going to be singing their hearts out. It will be like a roar from the heavenly realms itself. It would be like the rushing of water as you hear voices from all around the world, from all generations singing, worthy is the Lamb. That's a day that we're going to get to enjoy. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour will be there singing on that day. And prior to that great day, we all have the privilege of giving out invites to others for that It says there in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How kind of the Lord that he's given us as his children these invites and then he's told us, go give them out. Give them out to people. Tell other people about me. Invite them to this marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, that day and those invites are incredible things and yet in truth... We can so easily get distracted from that reality, can't we? We so easily get distracted away from that day and the call of God on our lives to give out the invites. We just get busy with 101 other things. We get a house and we do up our house and we've got to get all the kids sorted out for different things and then there's my hobbies and then there's things I want to do and we probably want to do things up. And before you know it, there's 101 other things going on in our lives and we totally lose track and the vision that there is a day to come. We're just an alien and a stranger here. There is a day to come that my life needs to be all about. And prior to that moment, I'm called to give out invites to others towards that day. We can so easily get distracted away from that reality, can we not? And in truth, I think we can so easily get distracted away from the fateful reality of unbelievers as well. We just forget. I mean, we live in Sydney. It is a beautiful city. And we live in one of the most beautiful parts of this beautiful city. It is Niceville. And in that moment, we can forget that there are 4.86 million people in Sydney that are destined for hell outside of Christ. Just forget. You know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by nature, then, we are objects of His wrath. Where our sin and His holiness collide, wrath is a necessity. He can't just turn a blind eye to our sin in his holiness and righteousness and our sinfulness. We are in the natural objects of his wrath, which is why the writer to the Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For he knows only too well that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And when they face judgment in their sin, it is not heaven that awaits them, but it is the realities of hell. You know, hell has become really unpopular to talk about. I mean, please don't talk about that. You know, it's all hellfire and brimstone. But hell's the truth. 
Hell's the reality. We shouldn't avoid looking at it. We should look at it. See, R.C. Sproul, in one of his works, describes hell this way. He says, We have often heard statements such as, War is hell, or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. For there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. You know, our media and Hollywood often portrays hell as a cool thing. It's the place actually you want to go. You don't want to go to heaven because then you're going to be a very small, small angel playing a harp. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. You want to have fun. Go to hell. But it is a lie of Satan himself. Hell, as biblically defined, is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. And 4.86 million people in Sydney openly tell us on the census, I don't believe in Jesus. And what I so love then about this text is Paul sits us down and slows us down and says, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about the importance and priority of mission. I know you get distracted. I know there's 101 different things going on in your life. I get that. But I want to talk to you about the importance and priority of mission. I want to talk to you about the reality of who people are outside of Christ and the role that you are called to by God's grace to go and reach them. And as Paul highlights the importance and priority of mission in our Bibles and in our lives, he also then, in doing so, draws attention right here in this text to three things about the gospel that if understood by us and embraced by us, can radically affect the way we think about mission and indeed do mission. So I can think of no better place to start this morning than Romans 10 as we begin this five-week series together than gazing at the gospel and gazing at how this gospel can indeed massively affect our mission. Three points then this morning as we begin this series, and here's the first. Number one, the gospel's reach. See, as we are sent out to this mission field, I want you to know we are not sent out empty-handed. And the Apostle Paul himself wants us to understand then the reach of the powerful gospel we hold in our hands. See, in chapter 1, Paul has already established the power of the gospel to us. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's wonderful news. You are not just sent out to try and convince people about Jesus. No, you are sent out with a gospel that is the power of God, the dynamis of God for their salvation to everyone who believes. That is an astounding reality. Dynamis, power, grace, splendour. You know, I remember when I was a young man about Josh's age, I got my first uh, CD box set, DVD box set. It was Band of Brothers. I loved it. 
It was amazing. I liked to watch it once and then the next night watched it again and then watched it again. I mean, it's only 10 hours. What, what do you need to sleep for? I just love this series. It follows the 101st Airborne in the Second World War. It was a small company called Easy Company, a group of American soldiers. And there's one part in the series where this Easy Company is holed up in France. And they are trying to push the Germans back, but on this occasion, the Germans push them back. And there's a whole group of tanks that start coming before them. And there's just about five guys in this house wondering, what on earth are we going to do? I mean, these, it's just like little us, and these tanks look pretty invincible. And so the captain tells them to take their shoes and socks off. And they're like, what in the world? But they take their socks off and they, they've actually got some tar by them and they cover their socks in tar. And then he gets them to put these sticks of dynamite in these socks with the tar on, tie it up. And he says, on three boys, we're running. And so they light these dynamites, they cut these socks and they run all the way to these tanks and they stick it on the tanks and then they run past them and dive on the ground. And just as they dive on the ground, boom, these bombs go off and these tanks are destroyed. They thought these tanks were totally invincible. But through these bombs, it all changed in a moment. Boom. That is exactly what Paul is telling us about the gospel. You think you can stand against the gospel? (laughs) You underestimate its power. No one can stand against the power of the gospel. If in God's sovereignty, that gospel is going to go off, then no one can stand against it. It's that same line of thinking then that he refers to here in Romans chapter 10 under the banner of the gospel's reach. See, in verse 11, he says, For everyone who believes in him, everyone, will not be put to shame. Verse 12, But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you get the point? Everyone, all, everyone, all. His point is, this is no respecter of persons. Jew and Greek, man and woman, slave or free, it doesn't make any difference. The gospel is powerful. It has a reach that is limitless. And my friends, I think this is so important because in our outreach, at least if you're like me, it can be so easy to at least functionally write people off. You ever done that? You put people in the very, 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 very unlikely box and try and find easier people that actually might find it easier to reach out to. The challenge is this unlikely box starts to get quite big. And so you find a young man that you're reaching out to. He's about 21 years old and he's, a, he's like a pretty nice young man. But the, the, the issue with him is he is covered in piercings. He's covered in tattoos. He looks like Simon Wood on a really bad day. He's got hair that's all spiky that looks like he might beat you within an inch of your life. And his clothing suggests that he's just got out of prison. And so as you reach out to this guy, he's actually a really nice guy, but the look of him and kind of the way he is, you just think, you know what? I just cannot imagine him coming to my church and singing. I just can't imagine that. And subtly what begins to happen is you start to put him in the unlikely box. I just can't imagine him ever wanting to come or fit in. Or, hmm. 
So we go on to somebody else. And then the person we go on to is actually this family that lived down the street from us in Leafyville. And they're a really nice family. They're really nice. And the more you get to know them, the more you realise you're really, really nice. Very, very nice indeed, in fact. And they've got this marriage and you think, oh, how's it going for you as a couple? And you're like, oh, we just love each other so much. It's only been 30 years that we've been married. And we're just, oh, okay, you're really in love. And then you meet the kids and you realise these kids are like, they're like Christians without the Christ. You know, they really are like really, really nice kids. And you think, there's, there's no chinks in the army. They go to private school. They love life. They have a boat. That's what they do on weekends. And then they stay at the holiday home. And it's utopia. And so you eventually pluck up the courage to try and talk to them about Jesus. And you say, oh, do you ever feel anything is missing in your life? And they go, oh, no. No, not in any way. And you start to wonder how on earth is this family ever, ever going to become a Christian because they feel no need for Jesus, no need for anything. They are loving life and everything is great. So you start to put them in the unlikely category because you don't know what to say next. And then there's another lady that you're reaching out to and she's also a really sweet lady. You got to know her from work and you invite her over to your house and as you get to know her more, you realise she is really nice, but there are some challenges. For a start, she is a practising lesbian, and she has two kids with her lesbian partner that's now become wife, and she is pro-everything that you are not. So when the issue of abortion comes up, there is a dividing of the ways. When there's an issue of homosexual marriage, there is a dividing of the ways, and you begin to wonder how, how on earth would this person ever become a Christian, and how would this work out? How, how would we do this? And then there's the older lady that you see at the, the school gate regularly. But no one really talks to her. And no one really talks to her because she comes in full burqa all the time. All you see is the slit of her eyes. And so you see everybody else backing away from her. And in truth, you do the same. Come on, son. Because <laughs> she's in the unlikely category. It is alarming how many people we put in the unlikely category. And Paul in every way, is teaching us right here, don't do that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to all. It is powerful. Paul's teaching is that don't write anybody off. And Paul knows it only too well because no one wrote him off. Paul's testimony is profound. He is the most unlikely person on the planet to become a Christian. You see, when you first encounter the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7, you encounter a man that hates Christ and hates Christians. So much so that he is effectively giving his life to become a Christian terrorist. When you see him in Acts chapter 7, Stephen live is being stoned by people. And we see Paul carrying people's coats and looking on with hearty agreement. He's smiling at what is taking place. He hates Stephen and what he stands for. So this is wonderful. Hey, listen, drop off your coat here. I'll look after them. Just go stone that guy. Very shortly after those verses, it says that the Apostle Paul wanted to ravage the church. When he asked for dispensation then to go to Damascus, the point was, after the stoning of Stephen, many Christians fled. There was the exile. They fled from Jerusalem to, to save their lives. The Apostle Paul spotted that. And so he's asking for permission. Let me go after them so I can get them and bring them back here so they can be tried and murdered. 
We hate what they stand for. We don't want to follow Christ and we definitely don't want Christianity. Let's just, let's just splurge it from the entirety of humanity. When Paul was on the way to Damascus, he was on the way to arrest men, women and children to bring them back and ideally have them killed. And yet on the way to Damascus, he encountered Christ. And in that moment, he went from a gospel persecutor to a gospel proclaimer. In a moment. The bomb went off. Boom! His eyes were opened. And in that moment, he went from being a man who hated Jesus to a man that wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. A man that persecuted all Christians to a now a man who stood alongside them and gave his life to leading them and helping them. That is the power of Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand here is, listen, I'm the most unlikely person in the world to ever become a Christian, but I was no match for the power of God. And neither is anybody else. Cornelius Plantinga says it this way. He says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. The Apostle Paul knows it himself, profoundly unlikely to become a Christian, but in a moment he did. My friends, we have no ability to guarantee as Christians that that bomb will go off. There are some things we have to leave and leave to the sovereignty and splendor and wisdom of God. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is as we attach that gospel, oh my, you're attaching something profound. Because that gospel, boom, can change people's lives in a moment. This gospel's reach is without limits. It can be so tempting to limit the Lord and to write people off. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know, don't write anybody off. Because all who call upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he'll save them all. The truth is no one is more likely than the next. Everybody is dead. Everybody is blind. No one can hear. Everyone is a miracle of grace. Paul begins then by encouraging us in the reach of the gospel. And then, very quickly, he goes on to talk to us about the gospel's charge, which is verses 13 to 15a. My second point, the gospel's charge. Look with me at these verses. He says, For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You know, what Paul wants us to understand here is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a fact. Everybody who stops in their life and looks to Jesus and puts their faith in him as a Lord and Saviour, in that moment they are saved. It is true. A reality open to all, an invite open to all. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yet what is also clear in this text is the question, the implied question throughout. And it's this. So who's going to tell them? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one that they've not believed? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? 
And how can they hear about him unless somebody actually tells them about him? And how can they tell them about him unless they've been sent? You know, this would have been one of the moments, I think, where as Paul is penning this into the papyri, would have probably paused and in effect looked up. Because it's actually an implied question. Who is going to tell them? Who has been sent? And it's as you linger on these words and think about them some more that you realize who's going to tell them? We must. It's us. It's me. It's you. Who has been sent? Well, Matthew 28. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. My friends, the disciples in that moment were representing all Christianity to come. All those who would put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, all those that take up their cross and follow Jesus are called to tell people about Jesus, to spread the word, to give out these glorious invites. Who then must go? Who must go to our neighbours and our communities and our workplaces and our colleges and our universities? We must. It's a call that's been given to us by God himself. And in truth, in all honesty, that is such a provoking and yet sobering and daunting call, is it not? I mean, now and again, you meet Christians who will say, oh, no, evangelism, it's not for me. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you a Christian? Christianity is a doing word. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, what is he calling you to do? Tell people about me. I don't fancy that. What? That's what being a Christian is. We know the gospel and we apply the gospel and we proclaim the gospel. It's what we give our lives for. One of the things I've never understood, really, is Christians that push back on that and just think, oh, mission isn't for me. You just think, so do you not love people? Are you not aware of the reality of what 4.86 million people in Sydney are actually facing at the moment? Can you sleep at night and be uninterested in that? We're called to go. We're called to go and tell people about Jesus. We're called to give out the invites. We're called to be a, a city on a hill in this wonderful place. It is such a provoking call on our lives, which we, we cannot deny but at the same time, it is an incredibly sobering and daunting call, isn't it? At least I think it is. See, I think we do face many challenges when it comes to this call. I mean, exhibit A, the fear of man. Anybody else struggle with that? Or just me? Do you find yourself, you know, when you're spending time with unbelievers, you know, speaking in front of a group? No problem. A thousand people? No problem. We can do that. Heart's barely going. This is comfortable. Speaking one-on-one with somebody who's got some serious questions about Jesus. My mouth swells up. My heart's going really fast. My hands feel clammy. Why is this? What's going on? I'm really bothered about what they're going to think. I think we all struggle with the fear of man. Now and again, you find people that don't and you think that is just a gift of grace and they usually have different issues instead. But for most people... The fear of man is a real big challenge and I face it in my life. That's why I've asked Brendan on week four of this series 
to just address us in this issue of the fear of man and to help us understand how do we overcome the fear of man? Because we've got to go. And yet another great challenge that I think we can all face, somewhat unwittingly, is I think a common tendency and temptation to what I call a Christian ghetto mentality. And I submit to you that actually any good church, this is always a tendency and temptation. See, when I say good church, what I mean is this, a church that understands that as a body, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. There are one another's in Scripture that we are called to observe. The church done well becomes the dearest place on earth when we realise this is family. These are people who I love and care about and I'm bothered about. That's why we pray together and rejoice together and weep together and encourage together and confess our sin to one another. All the scripturally implied verses we seek to apply. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things that came out on the new members video. Folk that are just leaning in and saying, I love this church. This is family. This is community. I love it. It's wonderful. We should see that. The challenge that sometimes comes there is that we're so busy enjoying that that we forget about everybody out there and everybody beyond those doors and everybody in Sydney. Because we just give ourselves to this. This is my life. And at that point, a Christian ghetto mentality is birthed. So we don't build a city on a hill. We just build a city in a mill with the doors shut and the screens closed and we just enjoy family together. And now and again, once a year, we give a little invite to Alpha. I think that's my evangelism for the year. Or even better now, because we're a bit more modern, we're like, I'm going to put, I'm going to advertise Christmas on Facebook. I'm all out there for Jesus. I think that's our evangelism. But actually, all we're doing is building a city in a mill, not a city on a hill. And at that point, a Christian ghetto mentality begins. No one goes looking for it. But it happens, and I know it because I've done it and I've lived it. See, in 2005, I read a book that literally changed my life. I'd been a pastor for five years at that point in the United Kingdom and Wales. And we spent time looking at a book on evangelism and mission as a pastoral team. And I'll never forget it. it. It was just one of those sweet times where you can just look back and think, that was a moment that changed our lives. And here's what happened. As we're reading this book, one of the points of the book was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. He had genuine friends that did not know him, and so he wants to be with them. And the question that then came to me and the team is, hey, guys, how many friends do you have that don't know Jesus? Not acquaintances, not people you work with and like, oh yeah, I think I know their name. Friends. People that would invite you to their wedding, that they'd invite you to their party. You've had them in your home, you've had meals with them. They're friends. And the answer when it came round to me is none. I don't have any. I mean, I've given my whole life like, here at the church, I'm given here. And as we went round as a pastoral team, Everybody's answer was none. And what we realized as we started to engage people in the church on it is their answers were often none as well. It wasn't deliberate, but we had built a Christian ghetto. It was a tight family. 
but anybody coming into it would probably feel like they were crashing the family party because it was tight and we'd forgotten about the people around us. And I never forget it. I remember coming home, talking to Em about it, and I felt a conviction. She felt a conviction. She's always been leaning more towards Billy Graham than I. And so it's just spending time talking to her about it. And we decided in this, in this moment, we need to change. And we did need to change. See, one of the titles given to Jesus is Jesus, friend of sinners. When you examine the life of Jesus, you don't find Jesus writing prescriptions to mankind and sending them in through personal leaflets or Facebook messages. You don't find Jesus standing on the sidelines of society shouting in orders. You don't see him keeping sinners at arm's length just in case they contaminate you or affect your family in some way. No, you see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords with his sleeves rolled up, truly in the world to win the world. Full of grace, full of truth, and giving his life away to seek and save the lost. And so you constantly see him with groups. You see him at weddings, at parties, at banquets, at crowds. He was busy every weekend with stuff, okay? He's spending time with unbelievers. You see him with ones, the rogue tax collector, the rich young ruler, the adulterous Samaritan woman. And yet I realised I'm not with anybody. My life's here. And so we realised in that moment, grace-motivated change was needed. I felt convicted before the Lord. The challenge was, how do you get to know people? What does that look like? I mean, I'm a pastor, so I work with Christians most of the time. Um, how does that work? And so I joined the school PNC. Thought that would be a good start. That might be how I get to know people. And they asked me to be the treasurer. No problem. I can count 10 pence pieces after events. I can do this. So I did it. So I joined this PNC and started spending time with these guys. And as we got to know them, I think about a month in, they're like, hey, we're going to run a, a disco event. Can you help us? I'm like, sweet. Yeah, disco, no problem. And it was a disco event for the parents and the kids. And so we all got together in the school assembly hall, probably similar size to this. We ordered this guy to do the disco. It was fun. And, and so suddenly we're, we're with lots of unbelievers, which was, which was good. And the guy said to me, hey, listen, no one wants to dance. Can you get the dancing going? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I've just got all the dad dances down to a pat. I mean, that was just the sum of all of them. At the end of the disco, he said, I don't think you usually dance too much, do you? I'm like, very perceptive. No. But we started a friendship. His name was Mike. And he said to me after the disco, finished about 10 p.m., he said, look, a few of us are going to come back to the house. Do you want to come, bring your family and stuff? And I'm like, sweet. So we did. The kids were real little at this point. Um, but we got him in the car, went down the street, going to his house. We were in his house till like 1 a.m. And at 1 a.m., the kids are still up. I mean, they're like, you know, four, five, six years old. They're going crazy all around the house. They're so sugared up at this point because all they've been eating is sugar. There's smoking in the backyard. That's not the kids. That's just the adults. There's smoking. There's swearing throughout the house. There is loud music. And I would have to say for me, I felt more like Jesus at that point than I had for years previously because I knew this is what I'm meant to be doing. Being in the world to win the world. I can't spend all my time in the ghetto. 
I need to go beyond the ghetto to people that don't know Jesus and truly befriend them. That, that started a relationship with Mike and his wife and a whole group of them that actually became very close friends. So by the time we, we actually left Christchurch in 2010, they were all coming to the event when we were leaving. They were all crying. They were all giving us gifts and, because they'd become family. They'd become close to us. But that's not how I started. I started as a man that knew no one. And I had to repent of it and change. You know, one of the greatest challenges I think we can face is the reality of building a ghetto. And maybe some of you this morning can relate to that. If you're honest, you don't know anybody that's not a Christian by the way of a friendship. My friends, I, tell, I, I pray then today would start a moment of grace-motivated change for you. Why? Well, because who's going to tell them? We must. Aren't you glad that somebody took the time to tell you the gospel? Now it's our turn. C.H. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they would perish, then let them do so with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, then let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Amen? That is the call of God on our lives. We cannot close the shutters and close the doors. We need to be in the world to win the world. We are not called to build a city in a mill. We are called to build a city in a hill. Sunday is the best day of the week. There's a part of me that wishes every day was a Sunday. When the family gathers, it is a precious moment, but it is also a precious moment when the family scatters to do what we're called to do, which is tell people about Jesus. It's the call of God on our lives. And as Paul placards that reality before our lives, he wants us to understand that's not just the gospel's charge on our lives, but it is also the gospel's privilege on our lives. And that's my third point, the gospel's privilege. This is what he says at the close of verse 15. It's beautiful. He says, For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's beautiful. As it is written, he's talking about Old Testament times and scripture there. You know, when a nation went out to war and won, a young man, a herald and a runner, I often think of my own son when I'm imagining this scene, a herald and a runner, a young man who is often the fittest in the group, would have the privilege of running back home from dad and the older man that had just won the war, run back home and tell him, we won. Run back home and tell them, announce for them that victory's been won. They no longer have to fear any opponents. They no longer have to fear captivity because we won. And that young man would run with all his might. And the women and the children would be waiting for them to come. And when they see them, they'd be discerning, is this good news? And then they would discover, yes, it is. Mom, they won. Friends, they won. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is the victory that we get to tell of now is far greater than theirs ever was. 
Because the victory that we get to tell of now is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. The victory that we get to tell people about is the victory of the cross when Jesus Christ declared, it is finished. In that moment, boom, the victory had been won. The battle had been won. He made it possible in that moment for whoever puts their faith in him as Lord and Savior to be forgiven of their sin and redeemed to the Father, to be adopted into the family of God and to know that heaven is their home. And he wants to help us see, listen, we now have the privilege of telling everybody about that victory, a victory that can change their lives. It's not just a call of God on our lives. It's a privilege. We get to run ahead and tell everybody. Let me tell you about the greatest victory ever won. Let me tell you about my friend Jesus. What a privilege. You know, one man who I think wonderfully understood that privilege is a man by the name of John Harper. Many of us in the room will have probably never heard of him. Mr. Harper was actually the real hero of the Titanic. And so just to close, I want to share his story with you. It was on the night of April the 14th, 1912, that the RMS Titanic sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters, heading unknowingly into the pages of history. On board this luxury ocean liner were many rich and famous people. At the time of the ship's launch, it was the world's largest man-made movable object. It had been reported to be unsinkable, but 11.40pm on that fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side, showering the deck with ice, and ripping open five watertight compartments, and the sea began to pour in. On board the ship that night was John Harper and his much-beloved six-year-old daughter, Nina. According to documented reports, as soon as it was apparent that the ship was going to sink, John Harper immediately took his daughter to a lifeboat. It is reasonable to assume that this widowed preacher could have easily gotten on board this boat to safety. However seems to have never crossed his mind. He bent down and kissed his precious little girl, and looking into her eyes, he told her that she would see him again, someday. The flares going off in the dark sky above reflected the tears on his face as he turned and headed towards the crowd of desperate humanity on the sinking ocean liner. As the rear of the huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Mr. Harper was seen making his way up the deck, yelling women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. It was only minutes later that the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion, but actually the huge ship was literally breaking in half. At this point, many people jumped off the decks and into the dark, icy waters below, and John Harper was one of them. That night, 1,528 people went into the frigid waters and John Harper was seen swimming to as many as he could, seeking to lead them to Jesus before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr. Harper swam, swam up to one young man who had climbed upon a piece of debris. Reverend Harper asked him between breaths, Are you saved? The young man replied that he was not. So Mr. Harper then tried to lead him to Christ, only to have the young man, who was near shock, 
reply that he was not interested. John Harper then took off his life jacket and threw it to the young men and said, here then, you need this more than I do and swam away to other people. A few minutes later, Harper swam back to the young man and succeeded in leading him to salvation. Of the 1,528 people that went into the water that night, six were rescued by lifeboats. One of them was this young man on the debris. Four years later, at a survivor's meeting, this young man stood up and in tears recounted that after Mr. Harper had led him to Christ, he had tried to swim back to help other people, yet because of the intense cold, had grown too weak to swim. His last words before succumbing to the frigid waters were, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Does Hollywood remember this man? No, but no matter. This servant of God did what he had to do. While some others were trying to buy their way onto the lifeboats and selfishly trying to save their own lives, John Harper gave his life so that others could be saved. John Harper truly was the hero of the Titanic. Hollywood doesn't remember him, but I want us to remember him. You know, 110 years ago, John Harper dived into the icy waters of the Atlantic to save souls. And my friends, I want you to be aware that all these years on from that fateful night, there are literally hundreds of thousands, by their hundreds of thousands of people in Sydney in the water. And I want to urge us as individuals and as a church, we must go to them. We must go after them. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God which reach is limitless. And we have been called in the sovereignty of God and been given the privilege by God to go give out these invites. Tell everybody you've ever met about the glories of what Jesus Christ has done. So my friends, I want to encourage you then, would we go? Would we be a people that brandish the gospel and truly go? And then would it be said of us, Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? Let's pray. Lord, it is clear in your word that we have an incredible high and holy calling on our lives. Lord, did you forgive us, starting with me, for times when we have got completely distracted. Completely distracted from the reality of the unbelievers that stand before us. Completely distracted away from the realities of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Completely distracted away from the privilege that we have to give out the invites. And Lord, I pray for all of us as we begin this series together. Would we not be condemned your grace covers all these things. You don't sing over us with greater passion because we're doing a great job in evangelism. No, you sing over us with passion because of the personal work of Jesus Christ in our place. 
But Lord, understanding the lost and understanding the call on our lives, would we be motivated to change? We don't want to build a ghetto. We want to build a city on a hill. So help us all, Lord, as individuals to brandish the gospel and tell everybody we can about the greatest king of all, namely you. In Jesus' name.